pretty easy for me, uh, even as a pastor, to go through the motions when it comes to church. It's really easy for me just to get into the daily grind and do the same things that I do every week. I mean, I'm a pretty routine person when I'm at my best as, as far as uh, getting things done and um, and working to develop the church. The more routine I am, the better uh, I, I really live my life. And, and that applies to every aspect of my life, my marriage and, and the work I do here. And it also applies to my spiritual life and to my friendships. I'm, I'm just better when I'm when I'm routine, and not everybody is that way, and I understand that, but I am, and so for me, especially maybe, it's like I can just, I know exactly what I need to be doing, you know, this coming Wednesday, and when I need to be doing it, and uh, I'll be doing it, and so it's really sometimes, and this is maybe sad, and maybe pathetic even, I, I don't know if I want to call myself that publicly, but but it's, it's almost pathetic that sometimes it's just like, I forget why I'm a pastor, and it's I, I just am a pastor because I'm a pastor, and I do the things I do because I'm supposed to do them every week, and they need to get done. And, and what is lost sometimes for me is the passion, the excitement, the reason that I stand up here and preach, and the reason that I study to get up here and preach, and the reason that I meet with people. A lot of times it's just like, I need to do this, but it's not like, this is something that that needs to happen, and I'm doing it because there's purpose and there's meaning and because I'm passionate about serving God. And I, I don't think I'm alone in this. I, I think that when it comes to all areas of life, we get stuck in these ruts where we are going through the motions, where we're just simply doing the things that we've always done, but we're not really thinking about why, and those areas of our life suffer because of them. And you can see that in work, and you can see that in your family life, and you can see that in your spiritual life. You can see that in just about every single area of your life. And uh, I heard it said recently that, that it matters why we do things. And uh, the person made a distinct, distinction between ritual and just mute going through things. And a ritual, they said, was something you're doing with meaning and it has purpose and there's something behind it. But but when you're just going through the motions, it's not the same. And routine is just something we do uh, on a regular basis because we always do it. And the example that they use to see the difference is that of having uh, food with the people that you live with, with your family, with your friends, whoever you live with. And, and you can have a meal together and it can just be a routine. We need to eat and so we're sitting here together. Or it can be a ritual, something with, with meaning and with purpose where if you're with your wife or your friends or your family, you're like, I'm engaging in this person's life and I want to find out what's happening with them and, and I want to invest in them and have a good time together and build our relationship. And there's a big difference there between just eating because this is what we do together and we're doing this because of a reason and because we care about each other and because we see the purpose and the value in this thing that we're doing. And uh, I think that most of the time if we aren't purposely trying to do things in a ritualistic way, then we tend towards the routine side of things as human beings. And the same reality, the same truth can be seen and is seen in church. 
And, and if you talk to the majority of people, I think, that go to church, that are at church right now on Sunday morning throughout our whole entire country and, and the United States, I'm not speaking for the whole world, but in our country, and, and you really got to the bottom of why they came today. Not why they're a part of church, because I think most people would give the right answer. I, I love Jesus, and I think it's important. But like really, why they got out of bed this morning, why you got out of bed this morning, and you showed up here to do church, if you really were being honest and you could just put away you know, the embarrassment and have a real conversation, the majority of us would say, I think, it's just my ritual. I mean, I do it because I've done it and because it's what I do it's just a part of my life and now I'm not saying you don't love Jesus I'm not saying you don't know the real reason you should be here I'm just saying probably somewhere deep inside of us in places we don't want to show people that are other churchgoers we're here because it's a routine not because it's a ritual and we see the value in it and there's a church in the book of Revelation that seemingly is going through the motions and Jesus does not like it at all. And I want to look at that church this morning because Jesus gives us what I think is the blueprint for us not just going through the motions as a church. And I think he gives us the blueprint for what I see. I've been talking about this a lot if you've been around our church. What I see is kind of the... The wake-up call, that'll be funnier to you in a minute, but but the, literally the wake-up call uh, for this next year in our congregation and the things that we're going to do. I, I think that what we're going to see in this passage has huge implications for us as a congregation, and I think what God is kind of saying about the next year at Creekside Bible Church, and, and not just us as an organization, but like us as in we together, and how we choose to go about our business, and the things that we're focused on, and what we're trying to accomplish uh, in our families, and in our lives, and, and in our church for this world, and for the glory of Jesus. And, and this is how it starts in Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church, in Sardis right and again I'll say this every week now but the angel uh, is an angel that seemingly interacts with and is part of the life of any given church and and the implication seems to be that we Creekside Bible Church has an angel that interacts with us that God uses in our midst uh, every time I've said this which is five or six times now, six times I think, uh, I, have, I, I have thought about It's a Wonderful Life but haven't said anything and I don't know that I can hold it in. So picture like It's a Wonderful Life and Clarence is, maybe we got Clarence, he has his wings now and so maybe Clarence is just hanging out and God is saying, hey Clarence, I need you to do this for the church and Clarence gets it done because angels are not to be worshipped They are beings that in some ways don't have the privileges that we have as human beings, but they are servants of God who interact on God's behalf in the world. And and so we as Creekside Bible Church have an angel, which I think is really, really cool. And and one of the, just now, I just thought of this on the spot, but I think it's important to say, it's sad that so many churches are, are quick to close their doors because they... For whatever reason, they just, well, things aren't going as the pastor planned and they shut down. And I just think, like... Man, what's the, the jobless rate of angels these days? Because churches in America are like, well, there's other churches. But God has, has created and gifted each individual church to do his purpose, including our church here. And this church is in Sardis. It would have been probably the only church in Sardis. And it was a city of about 30,000 people. So for us, if you take 
uh, Wilsonville and Sherwood, kind of our two closest here, and, and you combine them, it's just a little bit less than, than that amount of people. And Sardis had been a great city, but at the time of the writing of Revelation, it wasn't a great city. It was just an insignificant city that nobody really cared about except maybe the people in this church. And in ancient times, it was known for its royal archives, okay? So that's going to be important in a second, so tuck that in your, wherever you tuck things in your brain. And just know that for a second. Uh, It was known for its royal archives. That meant the records for the nation were stored in Sardis. Sardis had a significant and powerful Jewish community. And we think, well, that's great looking back. But at the time, Jewish people were very much persecuting the Christians. They saw Christianity as really a cult that had been an offshoot of their religion, and so they are deeply and intensely throughout Asia Minor, all of these cities really uh, persecuting or trying to persecute the Christians that exist in these cities. And so there's a large Jewish population here, and we know this in part because of archaeology, and today if you look at the archaeological digs they're doing in Sardis, uh, you can see that there was a a gymnasium and next to the gymnasium, which was the center of kind of pagan ritual for those people, you can see this Jewish synagogue. This is current. This is not an old picture. This is not a drawing. This is what they have been able to, to come up with. And actually this building in its entirety was about the size of a football field. And if you need a church the size of a football field as Jewish church, a synagogue, then you have something going on. And so the Christians in Sardis would have faced kind of this this difficult interaction with the people that worshipped here on a weekly basis, the Jewish people, and they may have even been kicked out of this synagogue. And this is the last part. It was full of sophisticated paganism. I just think that that's an interesting, unique thing because Christianity has never done well with sophisticated societies. And it seems like the more people want to be sophisticated in America, the more they try to push against Christianity. And a lot of times Christians want to like fight against that and say, we're sophisticated too. But the funny thing is the Bible makes pretty clear that Christianity was never like meant to be a sophisticated religion. It was just supposed to be uh, about a true relationship with God. And the Bible makes clear that that Christianity first and foremost goes to the broken, the hurting, the unwise, the unintelligent of the earth, and it branches out from there. And so in the midst of this city, we see this little church fighting and dealing with this sophistication that surrounds them. 3.1 continues in the book of Revelation. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, when this is written, Domitian, who was a Roman emperor, uh, was very full of himself. And uh, I said this in a different sermon, but at the time of this writing, he was ruling and he declared himself to be a god as soon as he got into office. Like, hey, I'm the emperor now. And by the way, I'm not only your emperor, but I'm your god too and you need to worship me. And then he did one of the most vain things. He took all the money in the land and he said, no, 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 that money's not good enough. It doesn't matter if George Washington and Abraham Lincoln is on it. Put my face on it. And then he took it a step further, and this is just almost funny to me. It seems like it'd be in some kind of offshoot comedy. But, but he puts himself holding stars in his hands on the front of their money. 
And so Jesus, writing to this church, to people who would have had the money in their, in their pockets, and with this guy holding the star, says, I am the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And the implication is that Domitian is not in charge. Jesus is ultimately in charge of the cosmos. He is in charge of everything that we know and everything that we don't know. He is the ruler. He is the great one. No human ruler can ever be what Jesus is. This is a thing that I think we kind of struggle to take a hold of and to grasp a hold of because we don't have people in our society or sane people usually that get up in front of us and declare, look, I am almighty. I am the most important being. I am to be worshiped. That doesn't happen very often. And we're especially not forced to worship that person when they say it. But for these people, they were. And so it's a big deal for somebody to come along and remind you to say, look, I don't care what this guy says, this Yahoo. I died and rose again, and I'm the one who holds the spirits and the stars in my hand. 3-1 continues. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is not good for a church. And if you've been following along, if you've been here for these sermons and you've paid attention at all, then you've noticed there's like a pattern. And Jesus usually, like most good communicators, starts with a compliment and says, hey, I'm going to build you up before I let you know, you know, like the hard stuff. Not here. He just looks at this church in Sardis. And I don't know if Jesus is in heaven, like, I can't think of anything good to say about you people, like, as a, as a church, as an organization, kind of, I mean, there was individuals, as we'll see, that were, were living right, but, but as a church, I can't think of anything good to say about you, except for you have a good reputation. You have a reputation of being alive, a reputation of being living, a reputation of being a solid church, a solid organization that is making a difference, but really, actually, you are dead. Now, sometimes you can see a dead church as clearly as as night and day, and uh, I spoke at a church once, and my cousin Jared went with me to this church, and I, I told this story before, but it, it's worth repeating here. And I, I, we went through this church service, and um, and I spoke, and we walked out, and we're walking to a car, and we got out of earshot of everybody else. And, and and as we're walking, he said this thing, and he said to me, and to Bryn, and to his wife Tanya, he said, uh, "That church isn't dying; that church is dead." It's like, yeah, that church is dead. I mean, there was absolutely no life there. I mean, it was people that really epitomizes showing up because this is our ritual. This is what we've done for for 40 years, and we're going to keep doing it. But, like, they didn't care to sing to Jesus. I'm pretty sure they didn't care that I preached a sermon. I could have not preached a sermon, and everybody would have been fine with that. They didn't care about each other or interacting with each other. I mean, this there was no, no reason for those church doors to be opened on that Sunday morning. It was absolutely dead. And so sometimes a dead church is really easy to see. But apparently in Sardis, it wasn't. They had a reputation of being alive. 
And it made me think about what that looks like. Because don't we sometimes associate certain things with being alive that maybe Jesus doesn't? We think every big church is automatically alive. We think every church that's doing a lot of stuff is automatically alive. We think that churches with good denominations sometimes are automatically alive. And I think that this church represents big churches, old established churches, and another one that maybe sometimes young people are are less inclined to kind of throw into the bus, super hip churches, right? Like if you go to a super cool church, a lot of times if you show up there, you just assume this church has life. I mean, look at how awesomely that guy's dressed and how good that light show was. And we just like, well, they must be alive. And churches that have tons of money, we assume sometimes they're alive. Look how big and great their building is. They must be alive. And I don't know what's going on in Sardis, but Jesus says, hey, your reputation of life doesn't align with what's actually going on because you are dead. And this church probably hears nice things in the community, you know, from people like, man, they're getting stuff done and they probably feel good about themselves because of whatever. But Jesus just looks at him and says, you, 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 you are not living. Now, here's the interesting part. I said that they probably would have had a weird interaction with the Jewish synagogue because just the, there was hostility at the time between the Jews and the Christians, and it was, it was a tough place. I mean, it was an offshoot of Judaism in their mind, and the Christians are going, we're not an offshoot of Judaism. We are the true Jewish faith. You people have left us because you didn't recognize the Messiah, and that creates some tension when you're having conversations like that. However, the church in Sardis has a, a big difference from the other churches that we've looked at so far. And that is, not one mention of persecution comes from Jesus to this church. It seems that the church in Sardis has been able to somehow avoid getting people in the Jewish community to hate them and getting people in the Roman world to hate them to the point of persecution. Jesus doesn't say, I know you're going through bad things or some of you might die or you might get arrested like he says to other churches. He simply goes on to, or goes right into saying, this is what you need to do different, you're dead. Iconography in Sardis synagogue suggests that they were at home with the Gentile culture. And so the Jews had a great relationship with the Gentiles there. The Gentiles didn't look at the Jews and say, you need to be worshiping our emperor. You need to be worshiping our false gods. You need to be doing the things that we're doing. They had kind of an immunity there, even though they probably didn't like it. And it seems that somehow, at least at the point of the writing of the book of Revelation, the Christians are flying under the radar. They're able to avoid the hostility, the persecution that other people are facing. It probably wasn't fun. It was probably tense. You probably didn't walk into the synagogue and be like, say like, hey, I'm a Christian, you know, look at me. And that probably would have got you in a little bit of trouble. But things are okay for them. And what seems to have happened is that the Jewish community and the Christians and the Romans are all peacefully interacting with each other. There's not too much conflict. And I think that what's taking place in this church is that while they are doing some fine stuff and they seem like things are going pretty well, they're dead because they've become complacent. They just kind of fit in with the world. 
Nobody's angry at them. They're looking at the Jews and they're saying, oh, they're nice people, so I'm not worried about them getting into heaven. They're looking at the Romans and like, they don't have a problem with them. I mean, I don't want to offend them, so let's just do, (coughs) excuse me, our thing and let's just hang out and we'll go through the motions at church, but we don't need to lead people to a relationship with Jesus. We don't need to rock the boat. We're gonna kind of look as much like culture as we can without sinning and everybody can stay happy and nobody will complain and everything will be okay. And so while they look like they have some good stuff going on, services are rocking and people are happy to see each other, they're dead because they've lost their mission. And here's the mission of every church. Matthew 28, 16 through 19. And if you don't know the story of the New Testament, Jesus had died and he had come back to life. That's what makes us Christians, uh, really. I mean, the fact that we believe a guy got out of the grave in order to conquer sin is what makes us Christians. And so Jesus is alive on earth, and he's about to go back into heaven, and where he reigns at the right hand of the Father, we believe, to this day. But before he goes, he stops, and, and he says some stuff to his disciples. And this is what we read in Matthew 28, 16 through 19. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, Jesus says, hey, I got a job for you. And the job is simply this. I want you to lead everybody on the whole earth to salvation. I want them all to become Christians. And in case that's not a big enough job, I want every person that becomes a Christian to do everything I've ever asked them to do. To become perfect. This is the mission of Christianity. I mean, this is what we are to do. I mean, sometimes our mission is very small. We're like, I'd like to lead somebody to Jesus in my lifetime. Like, your job as part of a Christianity, as part of Christianity, is is to be a part of every single person knowing Jesus as their Savior and every single person obeying everything that Jesus does. And, And the question is, is every person a Christian? No. Is every person fully obeying, including yourself, Jesus' commands and teachings, everything that he asks us to do? No. And therefore, Christians have a job to do. Now the story continues and I won't read it, I'll just tell it to you. Jesus says, but, time out, I don't want you to do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. And so the disciples go into Jerusalem and they're hanging out and they're huddled in a corner thinking, wow, Jesus died and he rose again, this is super cool. And then he just went up to heaven in front of our eyes, but now what do we do? He said to wait for the Holy Spirit and they don't know much about the Holy Spirit like we do today. They had some Old Testament references and they would have been like, yeah, the Holy Spirit, it gives us power and it helps like Goliath die by the hands of David and it helps Samson when he was fighting the Philistines. But what does this look like for our life? And they're huddled up in their little house or whatever and then just boom, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the Holy Spirit comes and they start speaking in languages that aren't their own and it changes everything. And Peter goes outside and he starts to preach to a crowd. And on that very day, the church was born. And what we see is that God has intended the church to be the tool in which he leads every person that will accept him to salvation and leads all people to fully embrace his teachings and live them out on the earth. And therefore, 
any church that has gone, well, we're pretty comfortable. And I really like the people in my church, you know, and this is fun how it is. I don't really want it to grow because I have these relationships and it's good and it's simpler this way. Or, you know, this is just easy and I don't want to have to do anything extra and we're just kind of hanging out. And, and I mean, this is a, we have a great time together and it looks like we got some good stuff and we have a good reputation and the community likes us, but that's it. We're done. Then, then any church that thinks like that has become at least partly dead. I mean, Jesus is not looking at this church and saying, wow, you embrace false teachings and you need to stop like he said to other churches. Not true. Or, wow, you have compromised your faith and you are sinning and giving in to the ways of the world that I have told you not to do. He doesn't say that. He says, look, you look pretty good to the outside, but you've lost the mission. And I think it's because they've become comfortable, whether because they really liked each other and they thought they just had a good thing going and it was really fun to hang out on Sundays and have lunch together and all that, or because they didn't want to rock the boat and they didn't want to make the world mad and they just liked kind of falling between the cracks and people thought they were Jewish and but they could be Christians and not get persecuted and it was a little bit tense, but it was okay. And, and so they didn't want to rock the boat. Whatever the reason, these people had not fully embraced the, G- the mission of Jesus to lead every person to Christ and lead every person to a place where they're fully, 100% living for him. And so here's what Jesus says, and, and I, think, I think this is, this is what we need to hear and we need to pay attention to as a church. If, if it's like your first time here or... Uh, you don't care about our church, which is not the majority of you, I know, then, then I'm sorry because this won't have as much application to your life. But, but I, I think that, that our church is a little bit asleep. And partly it was because we were so unhealthy and we needed to remove unhealthiness and to think about mission was really, really difficult when, when we didn't know each other and there was, it was like, how can I invite somebody to my church when my church isn't accomplishing much and, and I don't know what's gonna happen on Sunday morning. And, uh, but we're not there anymore. And I think because of what's taken place in the history of our church, it's put us at a place right now where we're in a good place. I think you like our church. I think our reputation in the community is pretty good. I think that when people look at us, there's a respect level. But I think in some ways, we're sleeping. And we've forgotten that the ultimate mission is to, and this is partly my fault, I'm probably sleeping right along with you, but the mission is to lead every person to Christ and to help them obey, to cause them to obey, to encourage them to obey everything that Jesus taught and commands of their life. And I think in the next year, we're gonna wake up. But the reality is, and I hate this reality, but a pastor being awake never made a church be fully awake. A pastor saying, please wake up, never really caused a church to do what God has intended it to do. It's a choice that people, individuals in a church have to make to say, I'm getting back on the mission. And I think that, that we who have, have been here for the unhealthiness, we're like, we can't focus on this mission right now. And maybe we were wrong for that. I've said things like that. I don't know. But what we haven't been able to, and so new people have come and just said, yeah, I mean, this is who we are and we're comfortable. And maybe they came with this mission in their minds, but they've become a part of us. And, and we were just trying to, you know, know each other and, and become actually like a real church. And, and so they've kind of got caught up and swept up in that, that culture, but, but, I think today is a day when Jesus is saying to us what he says next. 
And we will have in just three or four weeks, uh, we haven't set an official date yet, our annual meeting. At that annual meeting, we're going to talk about things that I think are are, are only going to happen. We're going to talk about our prayer lives. We're going to talk about how you interact with your family. And we're going to talk about what we do in the community and and how often we invite people to church and how often we invite people to Jesus. And and we're going to talk about real goals and numbers we want to see here and baptisms and how many people we want connecting with us. And we're going to have like these goals and none of it will matter. You'll go, yes, good idea, good idea, good idea, unless you heed the words of what Jesus says next in Revelation 3, 2 through 3. Unless these truths are applicable to your life, this church looks exactly the same in 10 years as it does today. And here's what Jesus says, Revelation 3, 2 and 3. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. The first statement is the title of the sermon, and I think it's really the the imperative command of Jesus in this passage. He's saying, wake up. I don't think it needs too much explanation. You kind of know what it means, and it's the opposite of what I've described as being dead. Like, yeah, we're, we're doing things, and I like my church, and I have a good time on Sunday, and every now and then they sing a song that really connects with me, and I like Chad's sermons. You know, I, and come on, that's a little bit it, right? Like, like, we leave, and you think, I like Chad's sermons, and that's why I go to church here. And it's not arrogant. You just do, and, uh, and I like those people a lot, and that's why I go to church here. And Jesus is saying, fine. You should like the people you go to church with, at least some of them. That's good. But the mission, wake up and remember there's people going to hell and that the mission is not to have a good time on Sunday mornings or not to like a sermon. The mission is to lead every person to me and to help every person obey me fully. And man, I think if Jesus, I mean, every ser- I know I've said this every time because every, every one of these sermons, every time I'm preparing, I'm like, this is what the American church needs to hear. Uh, and I tell you every time I think like, this is the one sermon, if Jesus was gonna preach a sermon to the American church. Well, now I think it's this one. If Jesus was gonna say one thing, it's like, hey, wake up. Like, wake up and remember the real mission. And I think he would look at small churches and be like, you guys just like hanging out and that's not the mission. And look at big churches and be like, you guys just like having a show and that's not the mission. Look at every church in between and be like, wake up. Wake up. And then he says, and I think this is good and it's something that we need to remember in the next year, very, very important. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And I think if Jesus showed up this morning and he was giving this sermon, he would say to Creekside Bible Church, wake up. But I also say, I think he would say, hey, I like a lot of what's going on. I like a lot of what you have happening in your midst and I want you to not only do other stuff, it's not necessarily about doing other stuff, but I want you to continue to strengthen what you are currently doing. I think a lot of times we think waking up is only, well, let's just do more. I mean, what's the next thing? You know, what's the next thing? And sometimes Jesus is like, I like that plan. I like what you have going. I like what you do on Sunday mornings. But strengthen 
that. And, and in July, we will talk about ways to strengthen everything that we do. And so he says, strengthen what, you, what remains, what you already have going on, what is good in your church. Make it stronger. Make it better. Keep doing that. Keep working on it. Keep trying to make it everything that it can be. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I think that we, if you're a part of this church, you already feel that, and I like that, and it's the reason I think this next year is going to be so good, and and God's going to do so much through us, because I don't think anybody here at our church, even though we might be a little sleepy, anybody goes, yeah, we're doing everything we want to do. You think, well, how could we at a church this, this size, you know, and given that we've kind of been on a mission to repair things and make things better for a long time, but, but truthfully, there are churches this size and smaller who are like, yeah, we're doing what we need to do. We're, this is fine. And I think you're at this church partly because you don't feel that way and you know that the leadership here doesn't feel that way. And so, so I think, but just know that I think Jesus agrees with us. Like what we're doing is not finished. I mean, this isn't the end. We have, we have work to do because not every person knows him and not every person is fully obedient to him. And then he says this thing that I think it all hinges on. I think everything that Jesus says here, wake up, strengthen what remains because your, your work is not finished, hinges on us remembering something and that is what we have received. That is Christianity. You see, we're never gonna wake up by going, wake up, wake up, just, oh, you gotta do more. You gotta wanna do more. I mean, you just really, I mean, I, I I mean, I don't get out of bed every morning because, like, I'm like, oh, I just really want to wake up today, you know? I mean, nobody does that. Once I hit the floor and my feet are on the ground, Bryn will tell you that I act like that, uh, and she doesn't. But, but I, like, waking up, you wake up for a reason, right? You get out of bed in the morning for a reason most of the time. You wake up because of something. You want to accomplish something. You have a goal. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to get out of bed when you're excited for something or you have something new that you're not used to that you really need to, to do? Like if you have a test, you wake up super early because you're a little bit nervous, but you know the task is in front of you. Or if you're going to Disneyland, you can't sleep the night before and you're wide. I'm going to Disneyland in like 30 days. So, uh, and so you might hear that in every sermon from here on out. But, but you're like, you, you wake up when you're excited excited about something, right? I mean, isn't that like a natural thing? And so when Jesus declares, wake up, I don't think like, oh, I need to wake up. It's going to get the job done. Here's what's going to get the job done. Remember what you've received. Remember the truth of Christianity and heard. Hold it fast and repent. I think what Jesus is saying is like, hey guys, I, Jesus, stepped out of the glory of heaven. I mean, I was hanging out in heaven, the place that you guys all want to get to, and I stepped out of it. And I was born in a manger that smelled and was cold, and my dad was freaking out, and they laid me in a feeding trough. I went from heaven to a feeding trough for you. And then I went through adolescence for you. Like, I was a middle schooler for you. That's enough. Like, I would have accepted Jesus right there. <laughs> and then I lived through probably the death of his dad. I don't know that, but probably the death of his dad and the death of grandparents and all of the pains and the hurts that you experienced. I went through all of that for you. 
And then, after that, when I turned 30, I walked around my whole life being homeless, preaching and teaching for you. Trying to tell you what truth was, trying to show you what love is like, trying to show you how you can have a better life and how you ultimately need me. And at the end of that three years, despite the fact that I was still all-powerful, and could do whatever I wanted, I chose to die on a cross for you. And I stayed on the cross as people walked by and mocked me, the king and God of the universe. I did all of that so that you could have your sins removed, and then three days later I got out of the grave. And you guys are worried about fitting in in society. And you guys are concerned about just making sure that your relationships are good enough. Remember that you have been saved by me, Jesus. Remember that all of the pain and the suffering that you experience in your life will one day be alleviated because of me. Remember that all of the guilt and the shame that you had because of the sins in your life was taken away because I was nailed to a cross. And don't just remember it, by the way, but he says, I want you to hold it fast. I want you to make it more real to yourself, to to think about it more often, to to memorize it if it's in the Bible, to consider it, to, to dwell on it, to think about it, to pray about it, to talk to me about it, to talk to other people about it. I want you to grasp a hold of the truth that you know that is Christianity. I want you to take it in and hold it tight. That's how you wake up. I mean, you wake up by remembering that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. You don't wake up by going, I need to do more. You wake up by going, Jesus died for me. It changed everything about my life. It made my relationships deeper. It made my feelings better. It gave me a hope for the future. It made when I go through hard things easier. It changed absolutely everything for me. And I want the guy down the street to know about it too. You see, we wake up to the mission when we remember and hold tight to the truth of Christianity. We don't hold tight to the truth of Christianity because we wake up, and a lot of people have that backwards. If I ever really feel Jesus, I mean, how often have you said, I just don't feel that close to God anymore? Like, if I just felt closer to Jesus, then I would worship Jesus better on a Sunday morning. I would really get into those songs if I could just feel him more. Or if I just felt Jesus more, then I would pray. Or if I just felt Jesus more, I would, if I was convicted more, I would get rid of that sin in my life. You'll do all of that when you remember that Jesus, the God of the universe, stepped out of heaven to die for you so that you could have all of your sins taken away and you cling tightly to that. Then you will wake up then you will wake up. For our church, I mean, what I I believe is that this next year holds great things. It holds great things. I I expect God to lead people to himself. I expect our church to grow. I expect for our relationships to get stronger even though our church grows. I expect for God to raise up leaders in in our congregation, something we've been praying for. I, I think that this year is going to hold it holds, it's not going to hold, it holds absolutely great things for us. But I think that it happens if we remember how great Jesus is 
We make that the very center of what we do and we hold it tight, causing ourselves to go, wow, I'm wide awake. I mean, seriously, there are people going to hell. That's the reality. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And sometimes I feel the, the utmost burden on myself. I mean, sometimes I get stomach aches because people are going to hell and, and I feel like it's my job to fix it. But the truth is, it's our job to fix it. It's our job to lead every person to Jesus. It's our job to help every person, the people who sit next to you, live out what Jesus has commanded of us. I'll just ask you this, and maybe it can determine if you are sleeping. I'll just ask you a couple of questions, and and you can ask, am am I asleep? And, And the first question, the easiest question did you think about in the last week, in the last couple of days even, the fact that Jesus gave his life for you? You thought about it this week. You thought about it this month, except for when you're at church. Let's not count that. Except for when you're at church and I'm talking about it or we're singing about it. Have you thought one time, have you, have you thanked Jesus for what he did on the cross one time in the last week? Have you said, hey, Jesus, thanks, by the way, for leaving heaven and going through adolescence for me. I mean, have you, like, said that to him? Thanks for being willing to die on a cross while people mocked you so that I could have my sins taken away. Here's another question. How many people this week have you interacted with about the things of Christianity? I mean, how many discussions have you had that would further people in their relationship with Jesus, that, that would help them be more obedient to what he has called them to be and taught them to be and wants them to be? One time in the last week, have you had a discussion with one person that you think would benefit their spiritual life? Have you Send anybody a letter, send anybody an email, made a phone call, encouraged somebody, said, hey, I'm praying for you. Have you prayed for anybody that they could remove sin from their life? Even one person. And here's a question. How many people have you intentionally interacted with because you want them to know Jesus as their Savior? I mean, how many people have you just, not like, hey, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, but even like, I'm going to have a conversation with you because I want to develop our relationship because ultimately, I want you to go to heaven with me. I mean, ultimately, I want you to have your sins removed, to feel and know what I know in Jesus, and to be someday in heaven with me. How many people have you prayed for that you know that right now if Jesus returned or they died, they would go to hell? How many have you prayed for that they would accept Jesus as their Savior? If you're like, none, 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 guilt's not the answer. I mean, I that's said a couple weeks ago, like, sorry is pointless to Jesus, I think. I don't think Jesus cares a hoot about you feeling bad ever. He felt pretty bad on the cross, so you didn't have to. I, I, but I do think this last word is really, really important to Jesus, Repentance. He's like, you got to remember me and you got to repent of your slumber, of your sleeping. And the word repent is simply a word that means, and I know it usually when we talk about it in English, if we were talking about somebody repenting, it'd be like, they really need to feel bad and they probably need to cry for like a certain amount of time. And then at the end of that, then they can feel good again. And that's not at all what this word means. The word simply means a changing of the mind 
that leads to a changing in action. Repentance, when you read in the Bible, you don't need to go like, guilt, I gotta feel some, Jesus just wants me to feel guilty. All you need to do is like, wow, what does Jesus want me to change my mind about so that I live differently for him? It's been described as a 180 degree turn. And the truth is, uh, for us, for you, for me, I think it's this. Uh, we've been thinking about church and we've been thinking about our spiritual lives and we kind of go through the motions and we, we go through these, um, these kind of daily activities and sometimes they're Christian-ish. But I think what Jesus is saying is repent and, and be driven by the knowledge that I died for you and for the sins of the world and wake up and do whatever you can every day to lead people to me and to lead people to obey me. It's not about the routine, you see. It's about, you might do the same stuff. I mean, if you're already, you're like, I do pray. I pray every morning. Well, then just, just do it remembering that Jesus gave his life and wants everybody to know him and everybody to obey him. What he says next is the warning side. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This reminds us of later when he says in Revelation 16, 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as to not go naked and be shamefully exposed. The Bible makes clear that Jesus will come at a time when we don't expect. He's going to come, and if you're not a Christian, you will go to hell. You cannot wait and just sit around and go, oh, it doesn't seem like he's coming today. Yes, that's the point. It will never seem like he's coming today and then he will come one day and you need to be on his side because you've given him your life. But it has implications for Christians too. And the way that I've described it before and I'll continue to describe it is that we should be working to live our lives in a way that if Jesus came right now, we would say, hey, it's nice to see you. I'm glad you're here. It was good talking to you this morning. It's a bummer you didn't come just a little bit later because I had been working on leading that guy to a relationship with you. For Christians, this should be so natural and so exciting, the thought of Jesus' return. And for churches, this should be exciting. I mean, if Jesus came right now, we should be like, yeah, we were doing everything that you wanted us to do, and we are thankful that you are here because you're going to tell us how good we did. We will appreciate that praise. Matthew 24, 42 through 44, Jesus says a similar thing. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of a house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. It's interesting because Sardis was a town that was uniquely... Um, geographically located such as that it was surrounded by hills and if you know anything about warfare if you have hills all around you it's good because nobody can get to you very easily without you seeing them and then they're coming down the hill and Sardis had never as a city been taken over by traditional warfare but twice in their history twice this is a true story twice in their history they had been overtaken by enemy armies because they had failed to pay attention because they had taken down their watchmen, because they didn't have anybody on the lookout, and people snuck in in the middle of the night, opened the city gates, and let other armies come right in. 
And so if you're a Christian in the city, you know the history of your city, right? You took it in fourth grade, you know, like, uh, like I know all about this. The point is made extremely clear. We need to wake up now remembering what Jesus did for us because otherwise you get taken captive. Otherwise things happen that you do not want to happen. He gives this encouragement and I'll go through this briefly. Verses four and five. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out that the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Now it's interesting when you read this, if you're hard, if you've grown up in a, in a Calvinistic tradition, a, a tradition that says somebody can never uh, not be a Christian once they've become a Christian, then this verse is, is difficult. And, and here's, here's the reality of this verse, and I just want to make it out there. There's, there's Calvinists who think you can never, ever stop being a Christian once you become a Christian. And then a lot of times... On the Arminian side, there's, there's people who, who just think every time I sin, I need to like become a Christian again. And that's a different theological framework there. Uh, just, they seem like opposites today. But when Mr. Calvin and Mr. Arminius walked the earth and wrote things down, here's the, the reality of it. They thought very similar things. And the very similar thing that they thought is that if a person stops being a Christian, then they're not a Christian. And and Calvin might have said if they stop being a Christian, they never were a Christian. Arminius might have said, well, they were a Christian, but they stopped. It's hair splitting. If you go to sleep and you don't care about Jesus and you forget what he he did for you on the cross and, and you don't care about him at all, then you're not a Christian. And we've painted this weird, sad thing that is not biblical at all. It's so far from biblical. I mean, Jesus like, has these very strict warnings about holding on to the truth of the gospel. I mean, very, very strict warnings. And we've painted this thing like if you said a prayer one time when you were a little kid, automatic heaven, check it off. You don't have to worry about Jesus anymore. Jesus is saying, look, if... You are a Christian still, if you remember that I died for you, if you still believe in me, if you are still living for me, if you are a Christian, then I will never take your name out of the book of life, a book that we call the Lamb's Book of Life, where Christians are written down. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a statement with the big if in there. And so what I just, it's so important to me because it's a, it's a big problem in Christianity today. I just think there's people everywhere who think they're Christians, but they don't care about Jesus at all. That's not a thing. It doesn't exist in the word of God. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about Jesus. Just whatever tradition you come from, I don't really care. Whether you call yourself an Arminian or a Calvinist, not important to me. We have both in this church and they like each other and they're friends and that's okay and they can argue about it. Uh, That's fine with me. I don't care. I don't care who about that, but know this. If you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. (laughs) If you sin, you're still a Christian. If you do something wrong that Jesus doesn't like today, still a Christian. Don't need to become a Christian again. But if you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. That's the truth of it. Whether you said something when you were a kid, whether you thought you were once or not, if you're not living for Jesus and believing in Jesus, you're not a Christian. 
This is a huge, it's just a huge reality. It's an important reality. It's a side note. I don't like to do side notes in my sermons at like one point because I can't hear even hardly a point when I listen to sermons. But, but this is point number two, and that is you don't need to worry about losing your salvation, but you do need to make sure that you continue to live for Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. We are only saved by the grace of God, and so every day to say a prayer to try to get yourself back into heaven, that's not grace. That's terrible. But to every day forget about Jesus and not think about him, not a Christian. Don't worry about your salvation, but make sure that you stay a Christian until you die. I probably said that in a way that would make so many theologians just angry, like pick a side or you, you didn't word that right. I don't care. That's what the Bible seems to say. Just keep being a Christian. Keep believing that Jesus died for your sins. When you do sin, don't think you got kicked out. That's my tangent. Um, and that he will acknowledge you, which is a really good thing. And then he says, the final thing, whoever has ears, and this is you, I think you have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever, and again, singular, that means you. That doesn't mean like, oh, our church needs to wake up. What does that mean? That means you need to wake up. I mean, this is another problem in, in churches today. It's like, yeah, our church should do things differently. You should do something differently if you're part of a church. That's what, like, if you, if you think, wow, we should do this, this, and this, come talk to me, let's do it. You need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. Because in this next year, God has big plans for us. And the only thing that's gonna stop it is if you don't remember that Jesus gave so much for you, you don't hold it tight and wake up saying, we're on a mission and the mission is to lead every person to Christ and every person to a place where they are fully obedient to him. Now here's just the last part. This is, this is my conclusion. The first thing, if you're not a Christian, become one. I mean, when I say Jesus wants everybody to become a Christian and be fully obedient to him, that means he wants you to become a Christian. And when I talk about Jesus coming down and looking at a church and saying, I gave up everything for you, he gave up everything for you so that you could have your sins removed and so that you could get into heaven someday and have eternal life and feel whole. Have that missing piece that's deep somewhere inside of you where you go, I just wish something would fill this up. Jesus is the answer. And for those of us who are Christians, know this, how we view church matters. That's how I want to finish this. And I think there's like four ways that people can, can view church on a, on a regular basis. And you probably would never say these things out loud, but it's really, really important. Some as a family heritage. Like, well, yes, I go to church because my parents went to church and those are the types of people that we are. Some see it as a social club. I go there and I really like to have fun with the people there. I enjoy the company. I enjoy hanging out. Uh, I've even heard of salesmen, like insurance salesmen coming to churches just to like have more friends so that they can sell insurance. And, and it's like, this is some people that would never, like I'm not gonna go to sell stuff. You still kind of see it that way. Like it's a fun place and it makes me look better to my coworkers because I have some religious people around me. And so I go to church. Some people see it as a guilt remover. Like, wow, I'll just get to Sunday. I'll say I'm sorry to Jesus. That song will really get me. And then I'll feel better all week long. Got the wrong church for that with the sermons I preach. But, but some people see it that way. And others simply see it as a routine. It's just what I do. I don't know why I do it. I've always done it. 
And this is how I want you to see church. And I think it's what's going to wake us up. I think it's what's going to wake Creekside Bible Church up. Just make us a church that accomplishes so much for Jesus. We need to see church as God's organization that is devoted to leading every person to a relationship with him and every person to full obedience to him. When you start to see church that way, it changes every part of it. I mean, let's just look at the things that we have right now. We have a Sunday morning gathering. And you come here, and if you see church as a place that is designed to lead every person to a relationship with Christ and fully obedient to him, it changes how you do Sunday morning. You can't come here and go, well, I'm just going to kind of get it out of the way. You have to come here and you got to look for the new person and shake their hand and you got to come here and you got to try to interact with others. And when you sing your song, the songs, you need to really talk to Jesus internally about you know, what Jesus wants to say to you and how this is an expression of your faith. And when you listen to a sermon, you say, how does it apply to me? Not just when is he going to finish and uh, whether I like it or not. I mean, you need to say like, it, does it matter to me? Is what he's saying important to my life? I don't care if you like my sermons. I never care if you like my sermons. It's nice of you to say, and I'm not discrediting the comment, and sometimes it makes me feel good, but that's only like a prideful part of myself that I don't really like that makes me feel good about that. I just want you to pay attention to him and to listen to him and say, does it apply to my life? Connect groups. When you look at a connect group, you can go, wow, I can just show up and it's a great time to hang out. If you see this social club or that's part of my routine or, you know, it seems like something we ought to do. Or you can come say, man, there are other people in my midst in these connect groups and I want all of them to be fully obedient to Jesus. And if any of them here don't know Jesus, I want to lead them to Jesus. And it changes the way you interact and the things you think about and the love that you show. And it changes it all. We have to see church for what it is. An organization designed to lead every person to Christ and every person closer to him. And here's what I believe, and this is, I believe in you guys. Three years ago, I bet on this church. I didn't have to be at this church. I bet on the people that were here, and God's added more people that I would bet on again. I want to be a part of a church that is just constantly leading people to, himself, to Jesus and constantly leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And I bet on this church and I look at you and I think, wow, what if? What if everybody here woke up every day and said, I'm going to remember that Jesus died for me and I'm going to hold it tight. And because of that, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do my best to lead somebody, anybody to Jesus today might not mean a conversation about Jesus, but it might. And I'm going to do my absolute best to lead every person that is a Christian into a growing relationship with Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, it, it, would, it would change the world. Any church that does that would absolutely change the world. I mean, you can't have a church where every person is like, I want to lead people to Jesus, and nobody comes to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen. Like, we're not going to go through a year without baptisms if every person's here is like, I'm trying to lead everybody in my life to Jesus, and I'm trying to lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus. It won't happen. I mean, we would like, we would see the world changed if we just, every person here said, I, I will remember what Jesus did, I will hold it tight, and I, I am awake, and I am ready to go. I am ready to go. I think in this next year, we're going to come alive. We're going to wake up, and we're going to do incredible things. But it's going to come down to you making a decision 
to hold tight to Jesus and the truth that is the gospel, his good news for the world, that he came to save sinners. So what I'm going to do right now, and we're not even going to give you, we're not even putting meat on those bones for about three weeks, but I'm going to say a prayer for us. At the end of the prayer, I'm just going to ask, we'll have our eyes closed, or I'm just going to ask that if you, if you are ready to take that challenge, to be a person who remembers and embraces the gospel and is awake remembering the true mission of the church that we ought to be leading people to Jesus and leading people in a developing relationship with Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand up and, and, and we, whoever in this church wants to stand up at the end of this prayer and, and we're just going to declare together, look, look, we're in this together to lead every person to Christ. And we will not rest, we will not stop, we will not give up until everybody knows Jesus, until every person has been perfected by the love and the grace of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, It's crazy to me that you left us for this task, such an enormous task, Lord. But you did lead us, God. You led us, Lord. You you made us the people, the entity, the organization, the tool to bring people to a relationship with you. And God, I know how much you value a relationship with humanity because of what you did on the cross, the very thing we'll celebrate in communion in a few minutes, that you died to have a relationship with us. And so I know it's not like you don't care, and so you just put us as churches, as Christians, in charge of this task. You care desperately. And so I pray, God, that we would align with you. And God, I pray that every person here every person who calls Creekside their home church would make a decision this morning not to wake up first, God, but to remember how great of a salvation we have been brought to, as it said in your word. And God, to embrace that truth, that reality, the love that you've given us, the grace that you've given us, the mercy that you've given us, the kindness that you have showed us, God, every, every day so that we might wake up and we might have spiritual conversations and we might be focused on leading people into a relationship with you and we might take prayer more seriously and, and, and intercede, God, for these people who don't know you or for the people that are wrestling and struggling and hurting with the sins in their life, God. So now, God, I pray that you move in people's hearts deep in our hearts, God. I believe this next year holds great things. God, I also believe that these great things only happen because you never force your will upon us. It only happens. This church wakes up, God. These people wake up. So I ask you now who sit in front of me, if you're ready to remember and hold tight to the truth of Jesus, and you're ready to wake up and lead people to him and lead people into a growing relationship with him, will you stand up with us? Will you stand up now if that's a commitment that you're willing to make? Lord, I believe in this church. I believe in these people. I believe that they love you. I believe that they care about you. I believe that they care about others. God, we're going to commit. We're committed. We're committing right now. People who stand in front of me are committing right now to no longer sleep but to come alive. 
to come alive, God, because of the truth of your gospel. And to say, we are on a mission together. We're on a mission together to keep people out of hell, to keep people out of the the grasp of Satan, to help people break the chains of sin, despair, and hopelessness. God, we trust that as we are on that mission, that you and your presence would just be known in our midst. Because we cannot do it on our own. God, we need you to do it in us and through us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.